Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Cheshki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Whit here. Not long after recording this episode, we found out that Richard Franklin, who played Captain Mike Yates in the Pertwee era, had died peacefully in his sleep. We'd like to dedicate this episode to his memory. Hi there, this is Richard Franklin, and I play Captain Mike Yates on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the deep task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. You knew I was going to do that. You could have baked it a cake. Another easy week for you. A very easy week. I, I wish they were all this well. I don't know what I'm going to do when we get to Time Lash, though. Uh, my name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally deep four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. There's our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch-Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Hello. And finally, there's our special guest for this episode, the star of Page and Screen, Jim Sangster. Hello, Jim. There should have been another way, Tony. There should have been <laughs> another way. But unfortunately, we're stuck this way. Yay! <laughs> uh, you're, of course, referring to recording via Zoom rather than, you know, because there's nothing else you could be referring to. <laughs> No, of course not. So if you like what you're hearing, though I can't imagine why, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll get something. But not a Target book, since we know you have so many of them. You keep them in a sea base deep below the waters, guarded by proton missiles and dodgy pantomime monsters. 
just to say thank you for being willing enough to stay on the virtual air. I'll explain that to Dalton and Allison here in a minute. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons. Deep breath. Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Middleton-Welling, and Louise Dennis. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Holy shit, I did that in one breath. We also have our Goodreads group, where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We resume our discussion of the Peter Davison era with the first story of his final season in the role, Warriors of the Deep. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who Warriors of the Deep, adapted by Terrence Sticks from script by Johnny Byrne that aired from 1584 to 1384, published by Target Books in August 1984. As of this recording in December 2023, this title is out of print, but is available as an underbridged audiobook, 126 pages. Warriors of the Deep. Whenever I hear that title, well, when I first heard that title in 1984, the song Union of the Snake had just come out by Duran Duran. So for some reason, Warriors of the Deep kind of tracks the same way, though it's not as um, entertaining. This story is the very model of a troubled production. And this time it's Margaret Thatcher's fault. Absolutely her fault, as so many things were. According to Shannon Sullivan's website, after the success of the Falklands War, she called a special election to take advantage of her popularity at the time, and this caught the BBC off guard because they had to rush to allocate resources to cover the special election. As a result, John Nathan Turner was told that the first recording block of the story had to be done a week earlier than planned, or else the story would be cancelled. And obviously that caused problems for everybody, because they thought they had an extra week to prepare, and they didn't. Mm. And this caused problems with, among other things, the costumes, even though I think there would have been problems with the costumes anyway especially the Sea Devil ones, they were not only poorly ventilated for the summer heat wave that the country was experiencing at that time, but downright clumsy. The actors playing the Sea Devils in particular had trouble with the webbed feet, because they actually give them webbed feet, the poor things. And their helmets caused their heads to tilt to one side, which gave them vision problems, because they couldn't see out of the eye holes. Probably as a result of all of this, the Sea Devils, and indeed the Silurians too, move very, very slowly. My god, are they slow. But the biggest victim of the sudden schedule changes was the Merka costume, which was not entirely complete by the day of filming, and actually had the paint still drying on it. Oh. They used it anyway. <laughs> that could kind of work for, you know, slimy sea creature. Except when the slimy sea creature comes off on your main stars, as this one did on Janet Fielding's costume at one point. Phrasing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I knew there was a reason we invited you back. Uh, They used it anyway at John Nathan Turner's insistence, meaning that the operators who were used to doing the pantomime horse Dobbin on the children's series Rent-A-Ghost, which I've never seen, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Oh, yeah. yeah you're fine. Oh, good. <clears throat> Didn't have time to rehearse their movements in it. The paint ended up smearing on Janet Fielding's costume at one point, so they had to stop recording and have it replaced. Then there was actress Ingrid Pitt's suggestion that she tried to fight off the Merka with a karate kick. 
because she herself knew some martial arts. And, well, let's just say nothing about the Merka endears fans to the story. <laughs> Though some fans are endeared by it just because of it. Mm. The fact that the story is so garishly lit by comparison to other stories doesn't help matters either. Johnny Byrne was also displeased with the results, but this was a combination of his being out of the country and unavailable to do rewrites, which were sorely needed, and script editor Eric Sayward's willingness to use those rewrites to make the story as grim as possible. In the original, several characters end up surviving, such as Iktar and Vorshak and Preston. They all survive. Byrne was so displeased with these changes that he abandoned a new story that he was developing and never returned to write for the show. Mm. In addition, it was around this time that Peter Davison learned that his successor would be Colin Baker. He also learned that instead of getting to finish the season with his regeneration story, there would be a season finale that introduced the new Doctor, a decision which annoyed him. The only other time a Doctor had left before the end of a season was Hartnell, and everybody knows why that happened. In fact, the only other time a new Doctor has taken over from a previous Doctor under such weird circumstances was yesterday. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sorry, I'm still sitting with that a bit. I enjoyed it overall, but holy shit, that was a ride. <clears throat> This and other decisions began a rift between JNT and Sayward, which would eventually come to a serious head, but more on that later. How does all this affect the book, though, if you ask? Well, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover and find out, shall we? Jim, would you be willing to do the honors for us? I would, and I'm actually holding, for the first time in quite a while, the actual novel rather than the PDF, mm. which uh, I bought at the time. Fancy. Yeah. <laughs> However, I'm going to read from the PDF because my eyesight's not good enough to read in this, this line. So, when the TARDIS materialises on Earth in the year 2084, the Doctor meets an old enemy, the Sea Devils. Once the masters of the planet, they are now forced to live in the murky depths of the sea, but their intention is to reclaim their position of domination. This will entail the infiltration of Earth's defence systems and the provocation of another world war, more terrible than any yet experienced, to bring about the complete annihilation of the human race. Not only is the first stage of the Sea Devils attack successful, their associates in this dastardly plan are the sinister Silurians, also known to the Doctor of Old. Yes, and for some reason they call themselves... Silurians in this, and they refer to their cousins as the Sea Devils, which is, eh, yeah. Maybe it's a TARDIS translation thingy. Maybe that's yeah. just... I, so. <laughs> I really do, because there's just no other... Well, speaking of weird translations, according to the PDF, this book is based on a video game called Warriors of the Deep. <laughs> so, yeah, just kind of strange. Well, First impressions, then. Jim, you were holding a copy of the book that you first bought back then. And in fact, the copy that I looked at earlier to check the page numbering is also my original first copy. What was your first impression of this? Did you see it on TV first or did you read the book? What happened? I saw it go live on TV on Thursday and Friday evenings uh, back in 1984. Ah. And um, obviously I was completely hyped because a few weeks earlier they'd had a trailer which showed some clips from the series. So I knew that the the Sea Devils were back because they were in the clip, and I knew the Daleks were back 
because they were in a clip and I knew that there was something to do with um, uh, an alien planet with some bombardments. So basically for the first four or five stories of the season, we had a good idea where it was heading. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And um, I, I loved it then. I love it now. <laughs> Despite everything, I really, really genuinely like this story. Okay. Yeah, and I, I was about to say, who would have thought that seeing that trailer, that the best story of all of those would be the one with the random planet with the alien bombardments, but then that's just me. That's not quite true, though, because we do have Caves of Androzani still coming up. Uh, Dalton, what was your first impression of this? Uh, well, upon seeing the front cover, I was reminded of the third live-action Ninja Turtles film. where they go back to feudal japan and become samurai (laughs) and so this sea devil very much looks like a ninja turtle in a samurai get up to me (laughs) Um, and then i read the back cover and was like all right base under siege here we go uh salarians are back all right and uh didn't have high hopes for it but by the end of the story i actually yeah i came around to it i haven't watched the televised version so i don't have any opinions about that but yeah i thought it was a pretty decent story all in all okay and allison what I have written down is Samurai Sea Turtle puts you on endangered species list. <laughs> <laughs> but he looks pretty friendly about it, I will say. Good natured. You know, for a monster who's here to perhaps uh, take possession of the earth and kill all the humans if necessary, I mean, he's not really going to give you a bad time about it. The back of the book is a very accurate uh, uh Prelude to my aphasia. Sorry, uh, the back. Of, <laughs> sorry, uh, the back of the book is a very accurate preview of the mode of story. It definitely does not play coy with progressive revelation, mm-hmm. which I actually liked. Uh, second chapter: the traitors. Uh, we know exactly which side the humans are on. We know who our returning villains and and creatures are. We know who everyone is very quickly, which is just as well because if the story had sort of doled out those revelations more slowly, it would have been tiresome because they were all pretty obvious from the start anyway. So I appreciated that the board was sort of set out in the first couple of chapters. Mm-hmm. I guess in the first three paragraphs on the outside of the book, you don't even have to open it. Well, that's true. And I could definitely see that because if you were a fan who had never seen the original stories, then you kind of need all of that set up from the very beginning, unless you read the Target books, of course. The first time I saw this book was part of my John Fitton book subscription. So I think I would have gotten it in September, since this was published in August. And so this was the very first time I encountered the story, and I read it, and I adored it. When I saw the televised version, I was... (laughs) I was mightily disappointed, much as I will be with a couple of other stories this season, but we'll talk about those when we get to them. But this was one of those that I encountered first as a book of so many. And yeah, I Terrence Dix is doing something truly transformative with a script that isn't as transformative. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to bash it. I'm not going to bash it nearly as much as I normally do. But yeah. So let's talk about what we like about this book. 
What do we like about it? Well, after having some some time away from the fifth doctor, I'm glad to see his bitch ass back on my screen <laughs> <laughs> reading a PDF. He is so snarky and sassy <laughs> and just it, it's it's so delightful to have him back after a little detour with uh some of the books we've read recently so i i quite enjoyed the doctor in this book and i don't think that's any different from you know picking up if we just would have kept on with the fifth doctor books i think he's continued to be sassy but uh we had a little time away so it's refreshing yeah, especially telling Tegan if she'll go ask the Burka nicely to go away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that really is a brilliant moment. Uh, yeah. <sighs> what else do we like? I like the starting the opening description of Turlo as being a little off-key, uh, kind of uh, shifty and unreliable, and I thought he was uh, delightfully entertaining throughout, as he is both uh, kind of bloodthirsty and kind of a chicken. <laughs> we didn't see any of his hypochondria here but his offbeatness i thought shown through very nicely not a lot of tiga not bad but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a little more subdued yeah turlo is incredibly bloodthirsty in this because he outright kills a few sea devils on his own he's also pretty afraid to fight so yeah um his, his worst quality shine in a way that i love in a way that only mark strickson can bring to life he's such a great weirdo yeah truly is i have to say i have to give dicks a lot of props (laughs) that's what she said i have to give dicks (laughs) a lot of props here uh for the fact that the televised story isn't really all that atmospheric to me because of the lighting but this book is Mm mm-hmm this book, even though he does describe the sea base at one point as very bright, which surprised me because I didn't remember that, I have always seen it as several light levels lower than it actually is on screen, and it's more effective for me that way. And the idea of all of this happening in dark murkiness is really transformative. There's that word again for the story because Dix is bringing to it what it doesn't quite have on screen especially with some of the characters and i definitely want to go into that as well jim what do you like most about this book i like the fact that terence is getting a go at doing the sea devils and silurians because his his mate mac hulk wrote the original stories and wrote the the novels for them Mm. so i like the fact that he gives just a little bit extra background detail for those Mm -hmm. gives them a little bit more motivation explains the motivation a bit better doesn't he also explain the lighting to say it's it's something to... Yes. Yeah, it, it's basically, he gives a, a <laughs> as he often does when he, he's watching the tapes and he goes, well, that, that's rubbish, so I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll fix that, shall I? So he gives a rational explanation for why it's so bright, which is, it's it's basically, you know, it's like a sort of sad lighting. Yeah. <laughs> which, yeah. Which a few yeah. years might be operating at this time of year, you know, when it's so dark. So um, I like that as well. But yeah. generally, I just like the fact that this is a solid transcription of what happened on screen. Mm-hmm. It definitely comes to that, doesn't it? It is a transcription, but as you said, with that extra bits and baubles tacked on, and they're very well tacked on. Uh, something that I had forgotten about this until I reread it is he gives an explanation that we don't get on screen of how the Doctor and Ikhtar met before. And... Uh, it doesn't quite gel for me simply because <laughs> the Silurians look so different in this story. 
And they kind of act differently, too. They have different abilities, even though there's even a line that's supposed to cover that as well, that some Silurians have the ability to use that third eye for particular purposes, and others just use it to signal who's speaking at any given time, because it flashes when they talk. <laughs> but mm. in this case, he's supposed to be the third Silurian that's there in the original Pertwee story, when the third doctor is trying to negotiate between the Silurians and the humans, but there isn't a third one there. In fact, there are other Silurians, but there's never a third ruling member. And I don't think there's one mentioned in the Malcolm Hulk book either, though I'd have to go back and look. But you're right, Jim, he's giving this the extra effort because he's trying to honor his old friend who had just passed away three years previously. So... It does have that feeling to it. He's being extra respectful with the script, even though there are parts of the script that I don't think require that respect. And just on the um, the Silurians as well, it's, this is another one of my little headcanon moments, but the new series, of course, has done Earth reptiles and made them a lot more kind of human-faced. And so maybe there are different types of Silurian you know, across the planet, different types of Earth reptile. But it's also possible that the ones in Warriors of the Deeper were in... Um, Suits. These could be protective suits. Oh. Um, oh. Because that's why the Silurians, when we first see them in the new series, they're wearing masks that are a little bit like the old Silurian faces, and then when they take them off, you realise, oh, they've got those. Um, and that was because they wanted these Silurians to be a bit more expressive. Right. So that's why they went for a more human face. So I'm thinking that maybe these are either the original Silurians or the modern type of Silurians in suits, which oh. is how I'm justifying the fact justifying the fact that through the glass lenses you can see somebody else's eye. <laughs> so, in my mind, the reason why they look like that is uh, intentional design. Mm. Okay. However, the sea devils <laughs> is another story. Oh, God. Literally another story. Literally, yeah. The man who, um, I think it was Richard Gregory whose company designed these because he'd had such success with the um, the Cybermen in Earthshock. Mm-hmm. And I'll confess this is anecdotal. It was told to me by somebody who said they'd been told this by Richard Gregory. Ooh. But I, I've never been able to verify it. Apparently he was on set. And when he saw the way they were treating the Sea Devil costumes by using duct tape to just stick the heads up to stop them from lolling, <sighs> he was so angry that he vowed not to work on the show again. Oh, God. Mm. So this this is kind of a termination story for a lot of production people. Mm. Because he's gone after this. Haven't, haven't spent most of the 80s, most of the Davison era, pretty much designing and redesigning a lot of stuff. Um, this is his last shout. Which is really a shame, because later on, they could have used his services quite a bit. But if that's true, then, yeah, it it makes a lot of sense of what we see on screen. It's that uh, samurai helmet. I don't know why it's there. It it doesn't add anything to the characters, to the the monsters. Mm -mm. You know, they're supposed to be able to live underwater, so why would they need a hat? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Such a stylish one at that. This is my seaweed-catching hat, which I'm wearing when I'm going (laughs) catching seaweed. But um, the fact that... As soon as they put it on, I mean, maybe this is again because they didn't have enough time to test all these things, but as soon as they put the helmet on, they could see that it was squashing the mask and, and, and making the heads lol. So why didn't they just abandon the helmet? 
I mean, that was what that was what Colin Baker worked out very quickly when he had to wear a helmet in Ark of Infinity. He just carried it under his arm because you know, the helmet mm-hmm. isn't working. And so, once again, it's a costume decision that someone should have looked at and gone, we don't need that, do we? Yeah. Don't, they don't look that much better with the, the, the helmet on. I would like to be kind to them and say they were under such a time crunch and such pressure that it was almost like a sunken cost fallacy. They were like, well, we're this far into it. We'll just deal with it later. And I could see that. I've, I've been under stress under deadline before, and that has happened. And certainly it's happened on Doctor Who before. It's almost as if they've, they've looked at the silhouette of the old ones where they had those fins. Mm-hmm. And then they've removed the fins, so they put the helmets on to continue the silhouette. Mm-hmm. And you, you just think, why didn't you put the fins on? The fins are an intrinsic part of the design. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's unfortunate. I think once you get past the initial shock of they don't look very good and they don't move very well, it's it's an interesting choice. But I just don't understand the purpose of the helmet. I was going to ask: they, the helmets are not there in the original Sea Devil story, right? And we don't see no. them. So, no, no, yeah. no, no, not at and all. Again, with the original Sea Devils, they were supposed to be like the Silurians. They were supposed to be nude. You know, mm-hmm. like like proper lizards. You know, like like proper reptilian monsters. They're just yeah. walking around stark naked. But the director on that one said, um, "No, I want them to be wearing clothing." And then they came up with the idea of wearing fishing nets. <laughs> so it, it, it feels a bit like they've found it, it's found um, material, which also ties them to the sea because they're wearing fishing nets. But for these, they've decided to make them samurai for no reason at all. Yeah, and they've got very cumbersome leather frocks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for lack um, of a better word, yes. Yeah, and uh, none of the costume actually makes a lot of sense, really. No, it doesn't. Allison, you were about to say something. Sorry. Well, I, I wonder if they just wanted to make sure that the Sea Devils looked adequately belligerent. Hmm. <laughs> well, they just woke up. It's okay to shoot them or poison them with gas. Uh, because they're. I, I, I wonder if they wanted to emphasize that they are definitely attacking the sea base. They are definitely on the offense. That might be it. And I think you're right. Because you said even on the cover, the sea devil looks particularly friendly. Sea devils in their natural state look like they're about to fall asleep. Yeah. At least to me. And that might be it. It's it's a matter of trying to make that costume look a lot more menacing than it is. And with the redesign, as Jim's pointed out, it doesn't have that menace quite the same way. At least they kept the um, the Sea Devil voices, because the Silurian voices on the TV episodes are oh. completely different. They're, they're, oh, both, they're electronic like the original ones are, but they don't quite have the same electronic flavor to it. But the Sea Devils at least have got got that kind of um, stammering whisper. Mm-hmm. So when Dalton was talking about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles earlier, I was just hearing the Silurian, sorry, the Sea Devil saying, Cowabunga! <laughs> <laughs> We've come for the pizza! <laughs> well, if we if we use your headcanon, though, Jim, that would explain the voices, too. So it's a synthesized voice, Yeah. 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 And, yeah, and, and that way the light really is just to tell you who's speaking inside right. the suits. Yeah. I, okay, so I'm I'm back on board with this, even though uh, <laughs> I, I'm not a big fan of the redesign for the new series either, even though I appreciate them being more expressive. It's just, as a longtime Star Trek fan, they look like Jem Hadar to me, without the ridges on the head. So mm. it's like, okay, we're back to this again, are we? Fine, whatever. What else do we like about this book? I have a question. Yes. 
I was trying to remember if when the doctor has previously taken human companions to an Earth that is still in the companions future, if he had ever done it on purpose before. Because here he explicitly states he promised to take Tegan to see some of Earth in the future. And he didn't land at exactly the right place, but he landed generally uh, where he was planning to go. And I was trying to recall if before it was always an accident. Hmm. Let me think. I mean, generally, he lands everywhere as an accident. <laughs> so, right. yeah. the, I mean, well, but the, he usually doesn't say, I'm going to show a human the future of Earth that they don't know about yet. Yeah. I mean, he does it, but it's usually kind of, ah, what can you do? He does it in the new series. I mean, the second episode is him showing off to Rose, isn't it? Yeah. I'm but, just wondering if this uh, is the first time we've seen this, or there's been an instance I'm not remembering. The closest I can think of is when the Doctor and Sarah have gone back to the 1900s for Pyramids of Mars, and then he goes forward to 1980 to show what would happen if they just abandoned the, the plot. Mm. Yeah. Because, Mike, I expected more of a follow-up later up of what, what did he want to show Tegan about this year, about this era. And I expected him to go into more of a cautionary monologue. Um, about, <laughs> about how the conflicts in the cent a century in the future would be so similar to the conflicts around time or something like that. But I don't think he circled back around to why he wanted to show her this. Era. Well, she asked to see it. She requested to see some of her planet's future. Because <clears throat> the weird thing in this season, at least in these first two stories, is that Tegan has kind of decided, ah, I don't have to go back to Heathrow because I'm not an air, air stewardess anymore. It won't stop her from being described as, <laughs> no. as a flight attendant for apparently the rest of her natural life, despite exactly. having worked, what, four days? Right. But she has become more of a tourist at this point. So in this story, she requests to see the future. In the next story, she requests to go see her grandfather. She found infinite furlough as a flight attendant. Uh, infinite furlough with Turlo. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry. Uh, I need more caffeine. It's, it's, uh, I, I like that Terence adds a little bit more to why it's a sea base as well. So on the very first page, he explains space stations have proved too vulnerable, too exposed to spy satellites and the searing blast of laser beams. In the early years of the 21st century, mankind concealed many of its weapons of destruction beneath the seas. Mm-hmm. And then he says that the sea base crouched like a giant metal spider in the black depths of the ocean floor. Mm -hmm. So it's it's lovely the way he's he's setting up the. I mean, in the in the TV show, we know it's one power block versus another, but it's never quite explained. Even though the traitors choose to go a bit more sort of um, East European to hint at them being traitors, but we don't actually know where which side the base is on. Yeah, exactly. And I noticed something else about this book, too. It struck me, because I think this may have been the first time I'm rereading it since 1984, but not only is this book very much a product of its time and the anxieties of its time, but it speaks to ours a bit, which is really disturbing. I mean, it's not quite as on-the-nose about speaking to our own times as yesterday's episode was, but it also does have that sort of feeling of, yeah, the, the world is split in a way that is difficult to mend mm -hmm. to the point that you have these two major powers and you don't have smaller countries at all. They've all been subsumed into these larger powers and these blocks are willing to kill each other at a moment's notice and the Silurians are more than willing to push that along. 
Well, and and even without the East Block, West Block bit, the reptilians versus the humans bit was giving me very much uh, Israeli-Palestinian vibes. Oh, oh yeah. So I was, you know, and that that's very much on my mind right now. So I was like, wow, this is hitting all the big <laughs> points here. It's trying, and yet I'd say it's hitting none of them. Well, but like the <laughs> doctor is fighting his writers. Like I, I will later. Well, so I I always try this impossible task of anticipating what I will remember weeks and years later, and of course I don't know yet. But what I expect to remember. Uh, years in the future of this book is the first few paragraphs and the last. Mm -hmm. And the end, I think I'll remember the doctor's reveries about all of this death and loss and how he was unable to prevent it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the middle, I just thought it was a really queasy 80s Cold War pastiche of, well, there are these two sides, sort of, well, they both have their points. Okay, I'll put in a few lines here, so I'm not accused of being a commie. Oh, but the Easter <laughs> ones believe in uniformity, obedience, and control. That's what they say in their pamphlets, anyway. And then problems will vanish magically. That's also in their pamphlet. <laughs> I, I just it, It's stuff that doesn't age well, but I understand at the time. These are not actually pamphlets being issued by the writer that the episodes and the novelizations are not works of auteurs. <laughs> right. That that these are are licensed properties. Many people are involved in what is or is not approved, and none of them are going to be that spicy uh, or politically pointed about anything that's going on at the the time. But I did not feel that it aged very well as a Cold War drama. It aged well as an example of how pop culture writers were trying to handle it at the time mm -hmm. in a way that really says nothing other than at the beginning where we have a great sense of tension and a sense of place about, like you were saying, Jim, the atmospherics of the base, but also why it's there. And at the end, uh, the doctor's mournfulness. But in between, it was just talk, 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 run, 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 large cast. Except for I thought that the technology with Maddox, the sort of... Uh, Previously, it was supposed to be the apprentice computer interface operator was an interesting prediction of how that sort of technology integration might progress in the future. I think that mm -hmm. had actually aged very well. Yeah. But, but that's not political. That's a prediction of technology. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since we're already at a point where computers move a little too fast for human minds to really catch up with them, or at least human fingers, I should say. But at the same time, you still need sort of a human sense of proportion and discretion as well. Yeah. I will say that both in the televised version and in the book version, Maddox's story is not really all that well developed there could have been more there but i do find that what dix does particularly well and one of the things i was particularly disappointed with when i saw the televised version is what he does with dr solo because that character is well served by terrence dix mm. mm -hmm. i was wondering how much of that character background was in the episode because it seemed to be flashbacks and, and commentary on her thoughts more than the spoken dialogue. Absolutely fuck all. <laughs> There's nothing there. There's nothing there. And may she rest in peace. Ingrid Pitt doesn't really bring that much to it. I mean, she does. She's obviously Ingrid Pitt, but 
there's not a feeling that she's come up with a backstory for that character in the way that Dix has, in the way that sometimes actors quite often do. She's playing it pretty villainously. And even when she's delivering lines like, this doesn't come easy to me because I'm a doctor, it's like, yeah, but you're still doing it, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Whereas on the page, you can kind of feel that regret and, oh my God, what am I doing? Even if it doesn't keep her from doing it. I I did like the contrast of Dr. Solo is a good person whom ideology has convinced to do bad things and fanatical adult convert Nilsson is a bad person whom ideology has given permission to do bad things. Oh, yeah. They were flattening them a bit. I thought that was... Nice of thin. Yeah, and I would say that her character is probably the best developed of all of the sea base people because I I just don't see them as more than their functions, to be honest. Even though we do get a female chief of security mm-hmm. several years before Tasha Yar. Preston on the page does a little bit more than the typical female character in a story like this would do. She had the, the female empowerment of being able to exterminate an entire species, girl power. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and die while doing it. So. <laughs> that's what, well, yeah. That's- True feminism, okay. yeah. Funnily enough, that is one of the few positive contributions that the director, Pennant Roberts, made. Yes. I met Pennant Roberts in about 1984. Soon after this, actually, I think maybe 85. Mm-hmm. And he's a lovely bloke. And he's a really good casting director. I mean, he's responsible for uh, us getting Louise Jameson as Leela, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Um, but he often looked at the script and changed the character from male to female. Uh, and this is one of those characters where it was originally a, a male character. So um, that's how we get Tara Ward, who, um, unusually for a young actress in the 1980s, is still working. Really? Yeah, she was in the. Uh, she, she had a very small role in the Justice League movie a few oh, years ago. Oh wow! Okay. Um, but her other Doctor Who connection, <laughs> this, is, this is my favourite thing. Um, she was married to Ray Lonnan, who in the eighties was a big star thanks to an, uh, an IRA drama called Harry's Game. But for Doctor Who fans, he played the very handsome guard in Frontier in Space episode two. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, so that's, that's your Doctor Who connection. Another Doctor Who hmm. connection. One other thing that Pennant Roberts did that improves the story immensely, and speaking of casting, is from what I understand from Shannon Sullivan's website, is that he also changed the gender for Dr. Solow because Dr. Solow was originally just going to be an elderly man. And instead, he cast horror queen herself, Ingrid Pitt. And good casting. And we've seen her before in Doctor Who. She was the queen of Atlantis in Time Monster. So is she ever above the surface? Has she been typecast as under the sea? (laughs) No, as an actress, she's very deep. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Sorry. But yeah. You're not. <laughs> no, you, I'm really not. You are as unrepentant as Salvin. <laughs> I really am. And one thing I have to give Dick's props for on this one is that he does not do the karate kick. Because when, when Solal rounds the corner and sees the murka, she attempts to take it down with her jujitsu. <laughs> from what I understand... Uh, she she made the suggestion, they decided to do it, it 
didn't go so well, and they decided to keep it in because they were so pressed for time, which is really unfortunate. This is very puerile, but every time I read Merck, I just mentally replaced it with Merkin and just mm-hmm. <laughs> visualized everyone fighting this electrified hairpiece that was slaughtering the truth. Well, you're not far wrong, um, because it is sitting on the heads of two people. Mm. Um Jim, uh, would you mind telling us about the Merca? Because I have a feeling you fall into the camp that loves the story despite the Merca, or maybe because of. This is so unfair. Um, <laughs> just by the way, on um, on the subject of Renter Ghost, so oh, this takes so much unpacking. You guys are, are aware what a panto is, aren't you? A pantomime. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you, you understand We're the whole. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to save a lot of time. So Renter Ghost was a pantomime-style comedy show for kids, which is about a man who's recently deceased, and he joins an agency where people can hire ghosts to do odd jobs. Mm. And it starts off being quite silly, but over the years it gets sillier and sillier until they get basically the ghost of a pantomime horse. (laughs) Or is it the ghost of the pantomime horse performers? It's never... I don't think it's explained that clearly. Or or I just wasn't paying attention because I was a kid and just thought it was funny. Yeah. So this is, this is what Rentagos was, and this is the two people who operate in the Merca played the most famous pantomime horse on British TV. And when you look at the design of the Merca, it's actually really interesting. It's a gorgeous attempt to break up the frame of a man in a rubber suit by making it two men in a rubber suit. So one operates the, the head, the arms and the front legs and then another one is bent double clinging onto the one up front and he's operating the back legs and the tail and it it's a great design and had it hmm. been shown in much darker light it might have looked a little bit more impressive had they had time to rehearse and work out maybe some sort of body movements maybe it would have looked different but to be honest it kind of looks a bit like the pantomime horse that they're famous for it looks completely different than the way I visualized it because I never look at the monster and creature designs before. And I was, I imagine, more of an electrified crocodile. I just pictured a miniature Godzilla. And it's, it's <laughs> kind of, if you imagine Godzilla with an extra pair of legs at the back. And a really jaunty haunch for Godzilla, though. <laughs> I mean, another thing is that we, we kind of make excuses saying, oh, oh, because of the rush and the election and all that, and they were told they weren't allowed to mess with the lighting, which is why it's so bright, brightly lit. If you look at Pennant Roberts's other stories, they're not known for mood lighting. I, I don't think that's, that's an excuse, because all of his stories are quite well, well lit, should we say. Ooh. But the one thing that I think, I mean, the TV show, there are two things that I think make it stand out for me. One is the music. Jonathan Gibbs's music is the best musical score for an 80s Doctor Who story not to have been written by Peter Howell. So for me, it's, it's right in the top of... It's, it's a beautiful electronic score. And the other is the sets. And I know Doctor Who's famous for its wobbly sets. This is one time where they've designed a really impressive multi-layered set. It's, I think it's one of the best sets in the whole of classic Doctor Who, to be honest. Hmm. Especially the way they integrate it around the um, the big pool. So they've got this this stunt sequence where they filmed at a, a real. I'm not really sure what it is, but some sort of maybe it's, maybe it's a military uh, pool or something. But anyway, they've integrated the design of that around this pool and then continued that design around the rest of the base. And it looks solid. It looks really expansive. But you don't get any of that in the book. 
No. You get a little of that sense at the beginning, but then uh, I feel like it's not really maintained throughout. And as Dalton alluded to, this is just another base under siege. So it's it's yeah. Doctor Who playing to its strengths, which is let's trap everyone in a room and see how paranoid they get. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that may be one of the reasons why I'm not as fond of the story itself, because definitely this time I was looking for the tropes of base under siege and they were all there and specifically base under siege stories from doctor who this could very easily be a trouton story except for well even <laughs> i was about to say even with all the even with all the death and yeah probably so it has all the feeling of say those silurians and sea devils could have been cybermen or they could have been ice warriors or they could have been, ugh, fuck, they could have been quarks for all I know. <laughs> they are but quite definitely. generic on, on the screen, aren't they? They are just, when the Doctor says, oh, this has all happened in the past and I've met them before, there's no guarantee that we've ever seen them on screen before. If you're if you're a young viewer who hasn't read Doctor Who magazine or whatever, yeah. you, you just accept what he says and move on. You wouldn't be thinking, oh, they're bringing back an old monster. So this is yeah. another one of those examples where they're, um, they're playing to a certain age of fan, mm-hmm. and that fan is Ian Levine. Yeah, oh God. Oh, oh! You said Voldemort's name. How could you? Oh my God! He who must not be invoked. I, I I have to go off on a tangent. Recently on Twitter, he complained about the fact that there was a leak that there was going to be a musical number during the Christmas special this year, and he did so by saying no, 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 no. And people quoted that bit of Dr. Distress back to him and said, what are you complaining about? You wrote the worst Doctor Who related song ever that was supposed to keep the show from being canceled and it didn't work. So what's your problem? <laughs> and and having, having written some songs for our podcast, the uh, Doctor Who Literature podcast, I'm very grateful that you'd Make sure that his is the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, trust me, sweetie. No, 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 no. Yeah, doctrine stresses. Oh, God. Yeah. That, either that or I'm going to spend my Christmas with the Dalek, but that has some charm to it. Anyway, sorry. Long tangent. But yeah, you're absolutely right, Jim, that this story is specifically designed for older fans, and it's meant to be this kind of continuity wank. But it doesn't have the gravitas that you would normally associate with that. In fact, I can't... uh, The last time we had something like that was Earthshock. It's catering for adults who were seven in 1972. Yeah. Who aren't watching anymore because they've grown up. That's true. But it's also catering for kids who are fans of Earthshock two years earlier. Mm -hmm and said, you liked Earthshock, because it was really grim and gritty. So, tell you what, let's do a season where loads of stories are like that. Yeah. And even though this is my favourite Davison season, and it's it's um, one of my favourite seasons of the 80s, yeah, you need a, a little bit of uh, light and shade. And yeah. er, Eric Saywood is going to be leaning into this a lot more when we come to Colin Baker. We're going to get a lot of stories where he's going to go, how nasty can we go with this? How nasty yeah. can we afford to be? Yeah. And he's going to be aided and abetted in that by John Nathan Turner up to a point. But yeah, that's because that gets the views, as we say these days. That gets the audience numbers. And it seemed to be working at the time, if I recall. Well, this this got like 7 million viewers pretty much every episode, which was great at the time. 
Yeah, that's absolutely great at the time. And it was part of the part of the spearhead for the the BBC's new season for the new year. Mm-hmm. So that's why it had that trailer. Yeah, and as I recall, Doctor Who magazine did a wonderful series of previews for this season as well that really hype up fan interest in it. And it certainly made this story look a lot better than it eventually did. But then I'm still slipping back into my uh, old habits. Ah, uh, Was there anything about this book that we didn't like? Well, can I, can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Reading through your notes, I, I saw that you had mentioned this line, and I had a question about it, where they're burning through the bulkhead door, and it says that Turlow was remembering the study tees at his public school with a terrified fag to make the oh. toast. <laughs> I will say that one linguistically just completely baffled me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But I knew we experts were standing by. <laughs> With lightness. Yeah. Can you please, so, someone please translate. Okay. Yeah, Jim, so, uh, I'll leave it believe, to you. I believe in the US the word fag is, is a, a term of abuse for um, for gay people. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, but and I know the use of fag as a cigarette as well. Or also like a, like a stick that you collect for a campfire, like firewood. None, none of them made sense. So anyway, that's context. how Terrence Dicks is using it here as well. <laughs> no, he's not. So in public schools, I mean, public schools are, they're so venal, they're awful, awful things. Um, and <laughs> that's why we have the government that we have at the moment. So um, a fag would be, you'd have boys in the upper school who would use boys from the uh, the lower part of the school as slaves. They would be mm-hmm. fags. So a fag would be used uh, to to clean the grate, clean the shoes, and maybe put crumpets on the fire. Mm-hmm. And so although the, the term is not the same insult as it is in the US, it is similarly offensive. It's similarly dismissive of a human being. Um, oh, they okay. don't matter. They're just, they're just a fag. They're a, they're a first year, and they're only here to, to serve us. And then when they get to year six, they can use the first years as fags themselves. And it just perpetuates this whole culture of, uh, okay. of abuse. And, and possibly that the terminology nowadays evolved from this usage. Uh, mm. I think they still use it. Yeah. I think they still use it in Eton. Okay. Which okay. is the, yeah. the, the most venal of the lot. But see, I I wasn't even born when this came out, so I don't I I wouldn't have known. Yeah, the, Stop that. Posting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of your uh, youth. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um. <laughs> I knew I knew that this would come up. <laughs> I, I'm glad you did because I when I first read that line in 1984, I did not have Wikipedia or indeed Jim Sangster to <laughs> ask these things, and there was nobody who could explain it. I mean, there's another. I noticed there's another term that you've pulled out, by the way, which is when one of the characters is described as Oriental. Yes, yeah. oh. and and this is a huge. It's one of the many phrases that doesn't mean the same thing in the UK as it does in the US. The reason being, in the UK, we were the centre of an empire. Mm. So, actually, here's a question. You know when you look at the map, yeah. like the map, map of the Earth, mm-hmm. where's the USA on the map? <laughs> when you yeah, look at that's it. that's a point. It's usually oh, on the left yeah. side. Okay, so you have uh, a British imperial map. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Where the centre of the map is the UK, because we own time as well, by the way. We yeah. The Greenwich Marines, <laughs> yeah. We own time. GMT. <laughs> so all it means is with the, the UK in the centre of the globe, or the centre of the map, rather, the Orient is everything to the east. Ooh. So Oriental is just of the far east, like the, the, on the, the, the east side, of the right-hand side of the map, as opposed to Occidental, which is the left-hand side of the map. Right. So in the UK, that's what it means. But that only works if you position the UK right in the centre of its empire. So the reason why I think a lot of, especially in North America, take offence at the word Oriental is just because, well, if if we're looking at a, a globe, for example, we're not looking to the east to see China. We're just turning to the left a bit, aren't we? So mm-hmm. it doesn't work as a word. So therefore, it's it's very imperial, imperialistic, and it's um, and in that way, it's offensive. But in the UK, I promise you, you go to any town in the UK and you will find multiple Chinese takeaways with the word Orient in the name because it's, oh, yeah. it's, not, it's not a problem at all. Well, that's true here as well. But I, I, th- I think there's a difference between Orient and Oriental, which is a weird parsing in American English. But you're right. It, it's not nearly as offensive there as it is here. And I'm not even sure it's all the offensive here, though, for it, that and, matter. And, you know, I, when I was writing my blog, it was something I was very sensitive towards. But I then got a few very strange reactions from people going, oh, you, I mean, they weren't quite going as far as calling me woke, because... Mm-hmm. They don't want that kind of abuse thrown back in their face. But uh, <laughs> people thought that I was getting a lot more upset than I was, whereas I was just pointing out there was a language issue here. In yeah. the same yeah. way that the celestial toy maker oh. is a pun. It's celestial as in of the stars, but also there was a Victorian description of Asian people as celestial because they're basically called them aliens. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. from the stars because they don't look like us. So... Yep. Even yesterday, when they've they've underlined the fact that the toy maker is a, a racist character, basically, of, you know, <laughs> guilty of cultural appropriation to the nth degree. But even the doctor uses the pun celestial, knowing what he's saying. We can take your games back to the stars. We can play across the cosmos. We can be celestial. He's saying we could be celestial, as in of the stars. While mm-hmm. also going, oh, go on then. Let's pretend that he was called the Celestial Toymaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I find it interesting that we bring that up because Elizabeth Sandifer, in her books and blogs, called Celestial Toymaker the most racist story. And one of her points of argument was the use of the term celestial. But... Yeah, I think in my notes, and I can't remember what I actually said in my notes now, I should probably look. Oh, I said oof. Yeah. <laughs> Karina is described <laughs> as a dark-haired young woman with attractive oriental features. Oof. So it's, it's, with this, I would, I would just say, for those people who see that word as a problem, it's there and it's, it's, it's used with, with good intentions. In, in, a, in a place and in a language and for an audience who don't see that as a problem. But that's because yeah. we are products of imperialism. And frankly, my lot are Irish, so we were just as subjugated as everybody else. So I'm not taking the uh, the side of the empire, um, but um, just being aware of the fact that I don't think Terran sticks should be dragged over the coals. Oh no, no, no. not any more than we normally would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Besides, I actually like this novelization by him. It, it, I think he does a good job. Yeah, yeah, it does. All those additions, the character development for Solow and 
yeah, it's doing a lot more than I feel the televised story does. But then, yeah. What else? I've got another bit of casting trivia, if you want. Just, uh, yes. So we're talking about uh, Tara Ward, and uh, we mentioned that um, Ingrid Pitt was in Doctor Who before. We've also got two of the Silurians, so Skibbus um, is played by Stuart Blake, and he was one of the guards in The Five Doctors, the story immediately before this. Oh. And the other main Silurian is Tarpok, who is uh, Vincent Brimble. And me and my, my friends used to play this game, There's a Brimble, because Vincent Brimble is one of three acting brothers. There's Vincent, Ian, and Nick. And they just <laughs> pop up everywhere. They usually play, like, the guard or the, uh, the, 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 super, the, the security agent standing behind the main star and stuff like that. But um, if you want to see what Vincent Brimble looks like without a Silurian mask on, you can watch Flux, because he oh. plays the husband trapped in the village of the angels. Oh. Really? Yeah. That's top oh So finally, after all these years, he gets to show his face on Doctor Who. But also Nielsen, who's the other traitor. So that's played by Ian McCulloch, who mainly for British audiences will be most famous for starring in Terry Nation's Survivors. Survivors. Mm-hmm. But, um, and he, he had a really good career, but he also appeared in Lucio Fulci's Zombie Flesh Eaters. <laughs> so that means that he has the distinction of appearing in a film that was prosecuted under the Obscene Publications Act during the video Nasty Panic of the early 80s. <laughs> and I, I mentioned that just to say I mentioned this on my blog this is the most 1984 story that you could possibly make in, in 1984 <laughs> it's, it's released in January 1984 and it's all about the threat of nuclear war and of brains hooked up to machines to try and control the, the, the madness so just a few months before this was broadcast in the UK you had the film War Games Matthew Broderick hooked up to computers to try and avert world war you also had a film called the day after which was shown in the autumn of 1983 but was shown in the uk in 1984 about what happens if a nuclear bomb goes off at the end of the year you'll have the drama threads which is so distressing that when i had to re-watch it for a book i was writing i couldn't get past the first 25 minutes yeah i i actually i'd seen it before and i thought I'm not going to rewatch this. Yeah. We, also in the pop charts, I mean, Alison, you mentioned the cultural impact of these sort of stories as well. You've got Dancing with Tears in My Eyes by Ultravox, and you've got <laughs> Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Uh-huh. I'm trying to avoid a pun, but basically a nuclear threat was in the air. <laughs> and the fact that we had the Protect and Survive manuals that were going around where they were telling you how to survive a nuclear attack. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I heard my dad say, if the nuclear bomb drops, I hope it lands right on top of me because I wouldn't want to survive it. So um, it was a very bleak time. I was 13 years old at the time, and it was a very bleak time with some amazing pop music and amazing TV. (laughs) (laughs) I do have a comment about Threads. I own that movie on Blu-ray. It's still in the wrapping. I can't bring myself to unwrap it and watch it because it so badly traumatized me when I first saw it. That movie haunts me to this day. And yeah, this this story is basically all of that distilled into Doctor Who. Even down to the costumes, which I have to talk about, because we're the <laughs> Dix gives them a very good description on the page. They sound like they'd be very nice looking. Um 
I guess so. <laughs> I, I love Tegan's outfit because Tegan's outfit just screams 1984. Christ almighty. I think he describes it as a, a, a splash of color in the console room. And and that's it's definitely clearly a that. deliberate pun, isn't it? Because <laughs> yes. there was a big trend in fashion at that time for Jackson Pollock. So, I mean, I had a, a black and white shirt that was just um, the design of ink, block, uh, ink splats. It was, um, it just looked like a bird had crapped down my back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I had a notebook like that. Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, Tegan again is the most nineteen eighty four she could be. Yeah, yeah. But those the, absolutely. The sea base costumes are. Um, should we say flattering? <laughs> There's a certain, you know, you're not necessarily looking for it, and then when you suddenly notice that it does accentuate certain body parts quite well. Yes. I mean, yes, I'm, 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 just, I'm just thinking of the first appearance of Bulick, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. That that I yeah. I I have to admit that is something that I will rewatch this story for because, <laughs> dear God. Oh, but you can't see that on the page, unfortunately. You also can't see on the page, luckily, how, and I'm sorry, I'm going to criticize the televised story again, how slow the Silurians and the Sea Devils are, except for one part of the OCR in Chapter 4, where one of the lines reads, Ichthar Skibus and Tarpuk stood waiting throughout all the long, slow process of reactivation and the very next line is for what seemed an endless time and i realized <laughs> terence dix is taking the mickey yeah. he he's watching this on tape and he's like good lord this is slow and he's going to say i'm going to tighten this up on the page but i'm going to give some flavor of what it's like to watch this because oh my god it takes forever for them to get on that fucking sea base <laughs> oh dear lord anything that we didn't like about this book or about the story well this is a, this is a concern i've had in the past with lots of these uh stories i felt like there were so many characters that i cannot keep up with who is who mm-hmm. and that just comes with the territory of novelizing any kind of, of television show. If you don't have like a regular cast you're keeping up with, you're going to, you're going to have to, of course, in uh, introduce these new characters. And if there is a sea base full of people that, that have speaking parts on screen, you are going to have to make sure that the reader knows who they are. And so I did have a little trouble at the beginning remembering who is who and what is their job here? What are they doing? All right, these are the bad guys. All right, what are they doing? Okay, yep, okay. But that's that's a minor thing, but it's just, it's always been a frustration for me when reading because since I haven't seen the televised versions, I don't have a face to go with the name either. Mm-hmm. So that's always hard. It the televised story doesn't really help with that either because everybody's <laughs> wearing eye makeup. Okay. Well, just as fingernail polish appears to be the big trend for both men and women now, apparently in the far flung year of twenty eighty four, eye makeup is the trend for both men and women, and it's like uh, I look forward to that day. Yes. <laughs> Well, hopefully you'll do your makeup better than they do, because, dear God, they lay it on heavily. I'll be 99. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone looks like a refugee from um, a Visage video, don't they? <laughs> oh, God, they do. 
They do. And it's hard to get mm. around that. It really is. But it's not on the page, thank God. Yeah. Mm. Anything else? Because I'm thinking that a lot of the stuff that we would consider as not so good about the novel comes directly from the televised story because as often happens with the Dick's novelization, if there's a flaw in the story, he will either fix it or he'll translate it to the page. Such as the Merca suddenly losing its electrocutionism. That's not a word. (laughs) But losing its ability to electrocute when it steps on the door that Tegan is pinned under, which probably should have electrified her, but it doesn't. It frees her. So there's that. It's selective electrocution and there was one other thing oh the leaving open of the TARDIS door that drives me nuts I was about to say that is so stupid (laughs) yes not only do they leave it open so that Preston and her gang can go in later and look at it but then Preston leaves it open it's like okay you've got a base under siege and you've got sea devils and silurians running around do you really want them to have access to the tardis it's an underwater sea base they don't get a lot of unannounced visitors (laughs) well this is true it's like not locking the bathroom door at home yeah no need to close the tardis yeah that and the hexachromite gas being who was it that said you might as well just put a sign over that saying, check off, check off, check off, because there'd be no other reason for that gas to be on the base. And also, if it's used as a sealant, why is it a gas? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but those are those are problems with Johnny Burns' scripts. And mm. having looked at Johnny Burns' scripts, both in Doctor Who and in Space 1999, I can honestly say he's not really the strongest writer. I get the impression that he's one of those writers that JNT liked because he delivered on time. Yeah. yeah. Which is why it, it's strange that you know he was kind of he was the lead writer in series one of Space nineteen ninety nine. And he wrote three episodes of series two when it all went to pot. But yeah. they get him into Doctor Who because he's done All Creatures Great and Small, mm-hmm. which JNT worked on. Yeah. And then they go, All right, your first one, you've got this lovely script. Can you put uh, this character in because we want to bring the master back? Uh-huh. And then the, he does another script, and they go, "Yeah, it's all very well, but can you put Omega into it?" <laughs> and then in the, I think in this one, it, it was actually the shopping list was given to him before he started writing, so at least he knew what he was doing on this one. <laughs> right. But I would have loved to have seen Johnny Byrne just go, mm, "Can I do something fresh? Yeah. Can yeah. I do something that I might get royalties off if they start selling toys in, in a few years <laughs> mm-hmm. in the future?" Because I'd be interested to see what. Uh, a non-continuity riddle story from Johnny Byrne would look like. Yeah. And I think that's what his abandoned script was going to be. Oh, no, except, well, in that it was a sequel to Keeper Traken. Right. But it wasn't, it didn't have any anyone else's ideas in it. Yeah. 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 Which would have been great, but wasn't to be. Wasn't he also considered for the script editor position for Doctor Who at one point? Uh, or am he, I thinking he something must be else? on the list. I mean, he did write one other script, didn't he? Uh, yeah. The movie. Yes. The unproduced movie. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Ah, well, that's probably just as well, because then we got that piece of brilliance that we actually got for the movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll get there when we get there. All right. Anything else we want to say about this one before we go to Goodreads? Yeah. Yeah, I I will take the silence as consent. So, 
As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.35, which means it actually is rated lower than an unearthly child. The reviews quoted here have been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Michael gives it 2.5 stars and says, Warriors of the Deep lives in infamy among Doctor Who fans because it was overlit, rushed into production, and gave Michael Grade all the ammo he needed to conduct a public campaign to get rid of the show. I'm not sure about that one. And yet, when I listened to the Target audiobook of this one recently, I was struck by how much the story really has more potential than most fans are willing to give it credit for. Whether Taron Styx feels a bit territorial in telling a story with a couple of alien races he helped craft in their original appearance, or it's just that my imagination has an unlimited budget, I found myself enjoying the first third of Warriors of the Deep a great deal more than the last time I dusted it off on DVD. That doesn't necessarily mean the story is perfect or becomes some kind of instant classic, mind you, it's still Warriors of the Deep, but I will admit I found the world building by Dix and the concept of a world on the brink of war and all it takes is a minor push by the Silurians to tip the balance, an intriguing one. And yes, it's a new take on the base under siege story from the Trouton era, but the stakes feel a bit higher here. That's not to say it's perfect. You can almost put a flashing light on the hexachromium gas when it's introduced as being the deus ex machina to eliminate the Silurans and sea devils, and there's little dicks can do to somehow make the Murka's rampage through the corridors go any faster than plotting. And yet I find myself coming away with a new respect for the story. It's certainly not a classic, but it's better than I gave it credit for. I still only give it 2.5 out of 5, though. Just on that um, Michael Grade thing, though. Yes. That's not true. It's, it's not, not true. It's, it's not That's what true. I thought. Um, Michael Grade wasn't even in position as controller of BBC One until September 84. Okay. But the reason why this has come up is because many, many years later, he was on the show Room 101 with Frank Skinner, where, just playing to the crowds, he threw uh, Doctor Who in as something he would like banish to Room 101. And the clip they chose was Warriors of the Deep to illustrate the very thing he was saying was rubbish about Doctor Who. But he didn't choose that clip, it's just they, they chose, the production team chose that clip to illustrate what he was talking about from the same year that he became controller, but he was not responsible for BBC One when this went on. Okay. <clears throat> All right, thank you for clarifying that, because <laughs> even when I was reading it, I thought that, yeah, that doesn't sound right. It's one of those facts that slotted into a place after the, after the event. Yeah, um, got but, it. But um, yeah, he didn't choose this as his example. Someone else chose it for him, and he was not in that job when he went out. Okay. A user named Tony, whose avatar looks disturbingly like me, and who's almost the same age as I am, gives it two stars and says there should have been another way. The Doctor's morality summed up in a sentence, and in a Doctor Who story that people aren't fond of, Warriors on the Cheap, as it is occasionally called. <laughs> With its wobbly-necked sea devils, its panto horse murka, and a karate kick of glorious stupidity. But enough of the TV story, which isn't, by the way, as bad as that, in my humble opinion. And finally, a user named Lola Margarita, 
gives it five stars and says, I don't remember watching this particular episode, but it's got a lot of twists and turns. Five stars. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this one? <laughs> Just thinking, maybe she had a few margaritas before she watched the, the story. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, I'll, I'll give this one a three, which is, you know, pretty, pretty generous. Um for 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 hearing all the the horror stories about the televised version, uh, and you know I I could have been much harsher, uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, a three. The story's kind of the Chekhov's gum gun of the Chekhov's gum. Wow, um, gun of the hexachromium <laughs> gas, and um, t- there's there's issues with it, of course. But I I did not have as much of a horrible time reading this as i have had other books in the past and um yeah like i said earlier i was kind of excited to see the silurians back and the sea devils um i think that our regular cast is all represented pretty well i even enjoyed turlo this time and you know how i feel about him so um <laughs> so I'll, yeah I'll, I'll give it a three okay and allison I bet Dalton and I are the yin and yang of Turlo appreciation. <laughs> now, it's interesting listening to the perspectives of Jim talking about being 13 when this came out. Tony, is that about the age that you were as well? Yeah, 14. I'm a little older than Jim. And so you were both recalling this cultural milieu. Uh, this was before the advent of Dalton. And I realized I actually don't know how old Dalton is. Um, mm. It's a... Uh, power he has over me um <laughs> I, I don't actually know exactly how long he's been on the earth my oldest my sorry my uh, earliest memories of watching the news and of being vaguely aware of pop culture start in like 83 84 i was born in 79 and i was thinking about the intensity with which i remember news and different cultural things from when i was 12 13 14 everything that was described about this that was interesting Everything in this book is uh, about how it's an artifact of more interesting and important things from its time. So, uh, Tony and Jim, you referred to basically more consequential art. uh, (laughs) Everything that interested me about this book was in the first page or the last. And then there were some fun Turlo moments in the middle. But in the end, I will remember it only for the first and last page a sort of vibe at the beginning and mournfulness at the end because uh the doctor has yes saved the earth from being destroyed but it's you know it, it's, a, it's a more explicitly pyrrhic victory than, than usual um as he has not been able to create the outcome that he wanted of basically no death no slaughter none of this is really recommendation of a novel it's purely of a cultural artifact so i'm going to go with a two which is not hate it's just this is in, of interest of cultural and historical interest. I took no pleasure in reading most of it. <laughs> Nor did it pain me, but I will not remember it later. Special shout out to Harry Sullivan's War, though. I actually, for some reason, that one stuck to my ribs more than anything else we've read recently. And oh. I was trying to think why. And I think it was sort of his... Uh, <laughs> Uh, very non-flattering descriptions of sort of his own autobiographical sort of uh, anxiety, terror of his love interests, <laughs> sort of <laughs> contemplation, but also how well he described the physicality of the set pieces of the locations. 
And I think mm. that was one of the mm-hmm. things that was interestingly missing in here, other than in the first scene sitting. I didn't get that sort of psychological bit that sticks to the ribs, didn't get those memorable set pieces other than the initial scene setting. And even though the things there, the scenarios being discussed about the revival of this species, perhaps the destruction of that one at the expense of another one, these global con- conflicts, I didn't think anything particularly interesting or insightful was said. So we'll not stick to the ribs. It will slide right off the ribs because I have Teflon ribs. It's really weird. Top <laughs> doctors are, are examining me. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to go with Kip. <laughs> okay. And Jim? Funnily enough, I was listening to your uh, Harry Sullivan's War episode uh, only yesterday. You're all on my list. Um, <laughs> is it a Christmas card list or a list of asses to kick? As expected. <laughs> um, it's a Christmas card that says, I'm going to kick your ass. Uh, yes, you're kidding. Yes, um, yeah, I, I was thinking of trying to shoehorn in an innuendo here by saying, um, out of five, I'd give it one. one for each of the Silurians so I'm going to give it three Ah. (laughs) and for what reasons Uh, (laughs) I like the story I think Johnny Byrne's story is is good it's not great, it's right in the middle I think a lot of the problems with it come from Eric Sayward but I also like the fact that in the book form Terence Dix gives us nice little descriptions little um, one-liners for each of the characters and I was just looking back at the description of Vorshak who on screen was a kind of matinee idol in the 60s he was, he was a really handsome actor and then he's, he's got a bit sort of silver foxy in the 80s and so that's why Terry Sticks described him as a tall dark haired man in his mid 40s elegant in his dark blue coverall Vorshak had the rugged good looks of a recruitment poster hero much to his embarrassment and it's, it's a lovely <laughs> acknowledgement of he's a good looking bloke Mm-hmm. Uh, so, despite the eye makeup despite, look, look if you can look handsome with that eye makeup then good on you uh, so yeah I, I think it's a decent It's. I mean you I think often start where you just start chipping away until you've run out of points but um, I always try to look for the positives and this is right in the middle it's a decent book it's an okay story the things I love most about the story are on screen though which is the music mm. and the sets mm. and as for me I am in the weird position of scoring a book higher than Jim for once I am giving this a 3.5 and it's because I kind of feel exactly the opposite the things I love about the story are on the page Hmm. I encountered the story for the first time on the page it read well to me as a story on the page and then when I saw the televised version I thought oh my God, I am so glad I read this first. And it won't be the first time that I have that reaction. It certainly wasn't the last. But there are things that I really kind of love about this book. Not to the point that I'm going to push it way up into the stratosphere and give it a 4 or a 4.5 or anything like that. And it's not even among Stick's best novelizations because we've already read those. But it's still pretty good, especially when we're comparing it to other work by Dix around the same time. And given the fact that there's stuff that he's going to do later that isn't nearly as good as this. Yeah, I'd give this a 3.5. So, thank you all. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we will read The Awakening. So that will be interesting. 
And we don't mean the famous novel by Kate Chopin that ended her career in 1899. No, we mean Doctor Who, The Awakening. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Feel free to follow us on Instagram. We're at Doctor Who Target BC, all one word. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at dwtargetbc at gmail.com with Doctor Who in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you, Jim Sangster, again for joining us. It is always a pleasure. Cheers. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.